Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Dr. Robin, happy day to you. Happy day to you. I saw you on Monday for Occupy the Capitol, and that was really exciting to be out in the streets with you and getting our hands dirty. And It was. It was nice. It was nice to be there. It was nice to join, you know, fellow um, faith leaders from across the state, really, you know, trying to lift our voices and be a gentle, proverbial thorn in the side of the legislators at the Capitol who really are not, you know, taking to heed any of the things that we need them to listen to. So not doing a damn thing, not doing a damn thing. It's happening there. It's happening here in Chattanooga. I'm super weary. Um, we have, we have been in the streets here for the last two and a half weeks and very peaceful, very conscientious about the ways we're having conversations with our council members. And we've been reaching out, we've been writing, you know, white papers, suggesting policy change. Last week, there was a council meeting that was held on Zoom and more than 600 people signed up to speak and to speak, you know, affirmatively around the way that the budget is going to be reviewed for the mm-hmm. for the city. Well, that budget was reviewed yesterday and okay. the council decided to not listen to a thing that we had asked for. And whereas they are spinning a news story saying that they have moved $2 million uh, away from the police budget for the city, it it's actually a lie. It's marketing and, and PR. And they mm-hmm. have reallocated $2 million by taking things from the police budget out of the police budget and just moving it under another budget line item mm. so that it's not technically under the police budget anymore. So, that But it's still funding the police. Still funding the police. Yeah. And so we, and then they passed a motion at the beginning of the council meeting last night that stated that anyone who signed up to speak and whose topic was related to defunding or divesting or investing in social services um, was going to be declined the ability to speak because they were going to cap the number of people that could speak on that topic to four, four out of the hundreds of people that signed up to speak. That's Um, not democracy. Correct. Because, you know, they're tired and they didn't want to be on another six hour council meeting uh, call again. Well, that's why y'all pay them. That that's that's why we elected them. Yes, that's why that's why they they are in the positions they're in. And right. 
I mean, it really, I mean, it's just so disheartening. I mean, I, I have felt um, on the brink of tears all day because yeah. we are laboring through this work and I'm watching my brown and black siblings in the streets just pouring their hearts and their bodies out for this work. And not only are they not being listened to, but now they're being intentionally silenced again, gagged again. Right. And the the, the council is is you know passing a a, a budget that um, that really needs to be looked at again. Um, and some of well, the council members that were affirming the budget are council members of color, mm-hmm. which I, I just like I just. I, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. I can't handle it. I'm so back to the streets we go. I, yeah. Like, fuck's well, sake. something similar is happening here in Nashville. Um, I got the Nashville people's budget email this morning and at the council meeting last night, um, there were several proposed budgets that um, were going to increase taxes but only one budget that was proposed um, had had a proposition to remove money from the police. Everybody else didn't even touch that. Of and course. so so I think I think what we're seeing in Tennessee is people, those of us who make up the democracy, are asking our lawmakers and policymakers to defund the police but though our elected officials are too scared to go down that road because why because you know because we're afraid that um we're going to release somebody from prison well listen the prison industrial complex is motivated by capitalism. Right. I call it carceral capitalism. It's all interconnected. Every yes. single bit of it. So as long as we put people in cages, as long as we have prisons, as long as we have the militarized police, we are complicit in the empire. Yes. And we need to figure out, you know, if, if, if we can do the work of demilitarizing the police and moving into more com- community policing efforts, which is relational, right? We might get somewhere, right? But yeah. I'm afraid that there are too many people who want to keep the systems in place for fear of black and brown people. For fear of black and brown people and because the systems that are in place are undergirding their capacity to continue to do the work that they're doing in their capitalist sectors. I mean, they, which is oppression, which is right. And so it's a it's both a fear of black and brown bodies and it's an affirmation of the status of their own personal status quo. Right. In order, in order for life to not to not change much, right. but there there are few people who can who can listen to examples of divesting and defunding a police force 
and not affirm that in some ways they make sense. People hear the phrase and they think, oh, well, that sounds ridiculous. Like, we can't do right. that. What would happen if we had no police? Right. Well, what would happen is if there was a domestic disturbance between a man and a woman or a partnership in a community, and instead of sending a police officer to potentially inflame the situation, you sent someone from a social services sector who could help de-escalate conversation and move this this couple into a, a, a conversation of restoration, right. that's not a bad thing. Right. If you've got someone who is having a, a mental breakdown or a, a psychotic event within their within their head, and you send someone who is skilled, skilled yes. and trained at, at, at working with people whose, whose brains do not function like, like normative brains do, what could possibly be wrong about that? We're not asking for the police to go away. We're asking for the police to be used for the thing that they were meant to be used for in the, in the beginning and for, for the, the role that they have taken on as um, instigator and agitator to be taken out of every single equation. Mm -hmm. That is not, that is not why they are needed. That is not what anything was. That's not ever why they were, why, why police forces within small communities were created in the first place. Now we could go way back to why we first, you know, instituted a, a, a system of policing and, and talk about the problems of that. But from a communal standpoint, it, it just it's just such bullshit to me that people think that the, that that our calls for divesting are specifically related to just, uh, you know, make all of them unemployed, you know, send all of them, you know, into into the need for another profession. No, we, we need the, we need our we need our civil servants to be exactly that. We need them to be civil, and then we need them to be servants. So I want to I wanna push this a little bit because I'm an abolitionist. Yes. Everything from marriage abolition to police abolition to prison abolition. Yes. So I actually think that we need to abolish the police as it is. And I don't know if you would agree with that, but I I like... I like more community involvement. You know, um, I like if someone is having a mental health disturbance, that there's someone who is skilled that comes to care for them and, and walks them through a process instead of a militarized police putting them in a paddy wagon and taking them to jail. Yes. I want to defund the police and then I want to abolish the police as it is. And I want to imagine more community policing efforts. I don't really like the term policing because we have it. We have a, an imagination of what that is and it's Correct. toxic. So if we could figure out, is there a different word that we could use community safety, um, community involvement. Um, but you know, like a lot of these, a lot of these uh, communities have neighborhood watch. Well, they call the police. 
well, what if we, what if we created some sort of hotline that allowed for community safety involvement that was a much more relational approach that was demilitarized and that worked for the full humanity of all people. That's really what I want to see. So I'm all for defunding, disbanding, and abolishing the police as we know it right now. Now, I'm also for um, abolishing the prison system because we are incarcerating um, disproportionately black and brown bodies. Right. Um, so, so I am, I am for the abolition of systems that are oppressive, that are death bringing to black and brown people, which seems to be the police, seems to be ICE, seems to be the prisons. So I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably a little bit further to the left of, of this than, than some people, but I, I'm, I'm to the left on this issue because I don't see, you know, the police, police officers are called peace officers. I don't (laughs) see how peace officers are creating peace. They are creating havoc in our communities. Right. And black and brown people are criminalized just for being black and brown. Right. I I mean, I think I'm with you and I, and yes, you are, you are more to the left than I am, but not that much more. I mean, I think I have a, I mean, as a, as a white person, self-admittedly, I have a, 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 like this possibility imagination within me that we can restructure our peace officer um, organizations in ways that affirm their role in, in our communities. I mean, do I think that there are times where investigations or um, the uh, the handling of a violent crime should be um, should be overseen by a variety of 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 systems? Yes, I, I still do. I. I, I I am not yet to a point in my imagination where I see um, the violent murder of a child or of, you know, an elderly person um, being able to be handled solely by, um, you know, an, an, an entity that does not in any way um, hold accountable. Mm-hmm. The person responsible for the violence. Now, that does not in any way mean that I affirm our current prison system, that I affirm right. our current investigation right. system, that I affirm our police system. But I, I still feel as if there is a um, there's some kind of of imagination for that. I, I just mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I don't. Yeah, I don't. Well, know, I mean, know how to get there. That's what makes this connection that we have beautiful because we can hold the complexities of our different standpoints. Me being a white passing Latinx, you being a cis white woman, um, that I think we both would say we believe in a diversity of tactics. Right. And so, so these, 
these tactics um, that we work toward, hopefully, um, will result in collective liberation. Right. And we will fight for that. This is why we have the podcast. Exactly. This is why we show up in the streets. This is why we do the work with the Activist Theology Project. Um, because we believe, I think, I think you and I would agree on this, that if we can shape and shift relationships to be the kind of um, ecosystem that is not toxic yes. and not abusive or oppressive, then we will create the kind of humanity that can self-govern, that can have entities that can hold people accountable. But we're still struggling with being human with one another. Correct. Correct. So, um, you want to talk about white people? I want to talk about white people because I'm geared up for this. Good Lord. All right, here I go. Um, <laughs> so, so, so let's start with Blackout Tuesday. There was, there was Blackout Tuesday. Should we tell people what we're going to talk about first? <laughs> oh yeah. Let's tell people what we're going to talk about. You go ahead. Tell, tell them what we're going to talk about. So, Robin and I have been having conversations around performative allyship and some of the problems that we're seeing in the streets and, and on social media and, and in a, a multitude of facets of our world right now from white people and the way in which their work their perceived work towards liberation feels very performative and um, doesn't tap into a concept of allyship that Robin and I would both affirm to be what's needed in the work right now. So we want to dive into that a little deeper. And I, and I, I have, I have mentioned before Robin and I started kind of how, uh, how, how difficult I already know this will be for me. And, and I say that because I am someone who I think about this all the time. I, I think about it nonstop when I am in the work. Why am I, why am I doing what I'm doing? Who am I doing it for? What is the method? What is the reason behind it? And I think for a lot of white folks in the work, um, those are questions that aren't being asked, which brings mm -hmm. us to this conversation around performative allyship. So there was Blackout Tuesday. Yes. Last week, right? Yes. And all the white peoples put up a black square on their social media. Mm-hmm. And then what they also did was they hashtag Black Lives Matter. Yes. Which... Which not only fucked up the algorithms for the ways in which organ black organizers use that hashtag to communicate with one another. Right. But it also unmasked the, I think, the pro proliferation of white performativity. That, and, 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 and I'll be honest with people, I have been sitting with my my standpoint as a white passing latinx as someone who is mixed raced 
um, as someone who was born of a Mexican immigrant and an Anglo father, but I have skin privilege. So I heavily identify as a Mexican American, but I move in the world with, with white privilege, with power access and privilege because of my skin. Um, so I, I want, I want to implicate myself in this conversation because to not do so would be to, to deny that I move in the world with, with power access and privilege, just like other white people. So what concerns me for white folks and white passing folks is that just showing up to a protest, just showing up to a march, just changing your profile, it actually does nothing unless you're in relationship and in solidarity with black and brown people who, because of their lived experience, have material consequences for being themselves. And so I want, so I want to talk about this. Yeah. I mean, not only are they kind of hollow forms of solidarity, they also create problems that white folk simply don't have visibility to see, right. either because they're either because their eyes are not open to the challenges of 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 the liberation politics surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement, or because they simply aren't bother they they don't care enough to even look for those problems there's two great articles one by vanity fair that the title is going to escape me um but it it talks about well let me let me just give the two articles one in vanity fair uh, which talks about white performativity and allyship specifically around white women white women yeah right. and then there's another really good article in rolling stone um, that talks about the the sort of long view of Black Lives Matter and how to be in relationship with the movement. And you know, I just last night I was sitting on the front porch as I as I normally do. That's where I spend most of my time. And I was sitting out there, and I got a message from someone in Canada who was having um, a conversation with someone in their church who was arguing, a white person was arguing about trans inclusion and exclusion. And, and I want to raise up the point that during the women's movement in the 70s, the women's liberation movement, while there was some work with people of color, indigenous people, and black folk, it was largely a movement um, led by white women for white women. And so white women have benefited from feminism in a way that black women, indigenous women, and, and women of color have not. Right. The same is true right now that white folks are benefiting from being able to show up to protests and not be harmed or not be threatened. Unlike when black people show up in the streets, we, we think the world is going to explode because we're afraid of black and brown people. Right. You know, there are, there are 
quite a few instances where we've watched videos or had photographs shared of white protesters um, doing action in the streets that really kind of flaunts their privilege in ways that they don't recognize. I mean, if you have seen a protest where white bodies and, and black bodies have laid down in a street or in a square or in a, um, in an area to kind of um, represent the death of black bodies. You, you may have said, wow, that's, that's really impactful that, I mean, all of these bodies and all of these, you know, melanin, tones in the in in this space and and they're they're this is an amazing form of solidarity but the problem is is that the actions of the white people in movements like that whether it's kneeling or laying down to represent death um it it in some ways um fetishizes black suffering (laughs) Because yeah. because white bodies are already protected by the state. White right. bodies are already are already ones that 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 are in no way going to going to fear for action like that. And this this prospect or this ability that white people have to simulate their own death as a way to garner empathy proves again how little black lives actually matter. I mean, these white people are in the streets. They think they're doing the work of liberation and yet they are, they are, they are doing the antithesis of that by performing an act that, that would in almost every instance never happen to them. Mm. And, and I, I, I just like, there's just something so um, icky about that for me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the street a lot and I've been in the street a lot in the last two and a half weeks. And I don't say that for somebody to say like, Anna, I'm proud of you. Um, I've, I've tried to be really intentional to not photograph myself, um, to not allow others to photograph me. Um, I have had several reporters come up to me and say, you know, I, I've seen you out here every night. Can you give us a statement? And every time my answer is, I, I, I will not. Um, I prefer that you um, that you center the, the black bodies that are here um, yeah. and, and decenter mine. Um, do I, they go to them? They do. They do. Um, okay. I, I have... I have a few pastor friends who were called out by a, a black organizer for kind of taking a group photo before the march started. Mm. I mean, rightfully so. Um, I, I personally have a really hard time walking in the streets with these other marchers and echoing the chants that they are leading. Um, I don't feel right putting my fist in the air. Um, mm-hmm. That is not a, that is not a symbol that I, that I in any way own or, or should, or should claim. Um, 
I don't at all feel right saying the words I can't breathe um, mm. because I can. And I and right. in, in it is likely that I always will be able to. Right. Um, because of the way that how the system is set up exactly. to, to benefit you. Exactly. And, and, and I think when I when I imagine this. When I imagine a world of liberation work where white people are fully invested in the work in a way that isn't performative. I want, I want it to be, I want it to never feel good. I want it right. to never feel, um, I, I want us to never feel like we're doing a good thing by being out there. Um, I, I want it, I want it to, to be a, a compulsion that we just simply can't not do because mm -hmm. my liberation is bound up in the liberation of others. Yeah. I, I, I love what you said. It's, it's not about doing good. And I think that a myth of whiteness is, well, we're well-intentioned. We're doing good things. It's not about that. It's not about being well-intentioned or good. In fact, if that is your orientation, then you are dangerous to this movement. Correct. Correct. That might sound um, harsh, but... Even Dr. King warned us against the progressive white liberal who was well-intentioned. Yes. Because they, too, are complicit in the very system that is perpetuating harm against those who are most impacted. Exactly. Um you know, there was a great article in the, in the Washington Post on, on performative um, allyship and um, the author interviewed Alicia Garza, um, who is mm -hmm. one of the Black Lives Matter co-founders. And Alicia says, you know, don't say that you can't breathe because you can breathe just fine. Right. And if you live in communities with clean air, with water you can drink, likely from the tap, if you can right. jog with earphones and a hoodie on and no car is going to drive up on you and perform a citizen's arrest or shoot you. Um, if nobody's going to bust into your house performing a raid and shoot you while you're asleep, then roll up your yoga mat and get back to business. <laughs> Which yeah. I just think is, I mean, if, you know, coy, but so real. And she goes on to yeah. say, she says, you know, if you want to do something, withhold your money. Until you yep. see some progress instead yep. of performing black death and capitulation to black, to, to continued black violence, because yep. you as a white person, you are okay. Mm -hmm. Now she also says black folks can't win without you. Black right. folks can't do this work without you. But if you are, if you are not going to be in the streets for the right reason, if you are, if the, if there is a performative action to your decision to go, do something else. Yeah. Do, do something else. And and the Rolling Stone article s said something similar. That they also they they interviewed um, um, Patrice Collier's Alisa mm -hmm. um, Garza and um, Opal Tomati. And um, they, you know, they all three were like, this takes all of us. 
And, you know, like I live at multiple intersections of oppression, but I'm also white passing. And so if I just decide to show up in the streets and, and chant the chant and not do anything else, that I am doing the very thing that our co-founders for Black Lives Matter are saying is problematic. And so, you know, I want to encourage people to think about their intention of this work. I think a lot of white folks, they're outraged right now at what's happening. Finally. And, And finally, and they're probably all over the map emotionally. And... If your anger, and if I could just make a book plug, Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, is really great. Um, that if you want to be in the work, do so from a place of deep intention. And don't just do it from a place of performing your privilege. Because that will undermine the political the political nature and expediency of this work and will further lift you up versus the ones who are most impacted. And so I think it's important that we revisit this conversation about white performativity and allyship, especially because most of our work is with white people who are trying to figure out what to do right now. And look, I, I don't, I don't want this conversation to come off as criticism for those of you who have finally gotten to a point where you are saying enough is enough. And I, I need, like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do and I need to figure out how I'm going to do it. I, I, I speak for only for myself in saying to every one of you, it's about fucking time. And I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad that you have, have finally become so outraged and you finally have such a fire within yourself that you can't any longer allow this to happen and to take place in a world in which you live. But I also need to say to you that you need to be very, very conscientious about how you are doing the work and you need to make sure that you are following the lead of the right kinds of leaders in the work. Because if you aren't, you will create a bigger mess than the mess you think you came to clean up. Right. Right. And also it it's, I, this is going to sound um, paradoxical maybe, or contradictory, but it's not one individual white person's mess to clean right. up. Right. Yes. Which is a myth of whiteness yes. that that you or I or the other white person can clean up this mess. No, it takes a community effort. And and yes, this is the result of, you know, decades and centuries of of white supremacy and and a, a hierarchy of persons. Um, one of the things that I'm doing and one of the things that quarantine life has allowed me to have is some spaciousness to think about what are my values? I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean for me to be white passing in this work? I've been in this work for two decades. 
I got into this work fighting for LGBTQ rights. I questioned how overwhelming white it was when I entered the movement in Chicago. And I still question that, um, uh, the whiteness and, and, and the, the capitulation to whiteness in the movement. And so as a white passing Latinx, I have really been thinking about um, how I've internalized white supremacy, how I live out white supremacist values. And so I am taking the work to do deep internal work to list my values. Mm -hmm. What are my values? What is my mission in this work? And I want to encourage our listeners who are white and white passing to also dig into the inner work of what are your values? Because if you allow your values to be the driver of this work, then you will be aligned with other people whose values are, you know, directed toward freedom and liberation. And I just want to make that plug to say, take the time to do inner work because the inner work will shape the outer work. And when those are not in alignment, I think white folks in particular fail at this work and they show up in ways that looks performative and sounds performative. And it actually undermines the kind of work that we are trying to do in the activist theology project. Yes. So I, I found a really great infographic. Um, most, a lot oh. of you know that I'm, I'm a little, like I'm a design nerd. So I, I love like a good graphic that helps illustrate things for us that we need to know. Um, there's a, um, a, a woman in the work um, named Leslie Mack. And Leslie, and I'm going to, we're going to share this on the activist theology um, page once the podcast drops so that you all can, can also see it. Um, but Leslie made this really amazing infographic on how we interrogate ourselves around action, justice action, and mm. what we need to, what questions we need to ask ourselves before we move forward with it. Mm. And so she, she asks, she asks us to do, to do three things. The first is to ask ourselves where, who is the source of the action? Meaning where did the action come from? How did you hear about it? Who is planning it or running it or calling it? Um, have you ever heard of them doing movement work before? And, and most importantly, are they a black organizer? So, if, if you're in the world and you are a white person and you see something come to you on Facebook or Instagram or in an email, I would encourage you to, to, to ask yourself that question. Who is the source of this action? If I'm going to, if I'm going to turn my photo black, if I'm going to share this graphic, if I'm going to um, show up at this protest, who's the source of the information? Where'd you hear about it? Mm. Who's planning it? Have you ever heard of them before? And primarily, are they an organizer of color? The second question you need to ask yourself is, what's the intent of this action? Mm. And that's where performative action comes into play. Is this just so that you or this group that is organizing it can be seen? Is the action being done just so that you have visibility to someone else? What or who is the target of the action? 
So for instance, we've been in the street in Chattanooga a lot. Our intent in the beginning was to join the voices of those in Minneapolis for the arrest of the officers that killed George Floyd. That is no longer our intent. Our intent now in Chattanooga is to gain the ear of our political officials to set out specific action items that we need to have addressed. But you need to ask yourself, this action that you're doing, whether you're turning your Facebook photo black or whether you're going out into the streets, is this just for you to be seen? And who benefits from the action itself? It's a really important question. The final question is probably a little harder for you to answer, but it's the one that should make your heart the most sensitive. What is the impact of the action? Is your action going to damage the current efforts of the Black organizers in your community? Is you joining in on an action going to silence their voices? Is it going to silence the voices of Black people? Is it going to damage the efforts of Black people? Or is it going to amplify the Black organization goals for whatever space you find yourself? You may not always know the answer to those questions, but I'm telling you, friends, if it's hard for you to find the answers, it might not be an action you want to participate in. Because the last thing you want, especially if you're a white person, is to damage the efforts of Black organizers or Black voices in your community that are already fully engrossed in the work and know exactly what their plan is for the action and who is meant to benefit from it. Mm. So we'll share this infographic, but it it just really, it's simple questions, but it's questions that we all should be asking ourselves if we're going to move into this work, especially if we're new to the work. Um, And I wonder how many people would have read an infographic like this before they turned their Facebook photo black and still have gone Mm -hmm. through with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love the question, who benefits from this? Because um, so many of us can go out on the streets and there's no risk. Right. And we need to see how white folks and white passing folks are always benefiting from the system. Like when you and I were out on Monday, neither one of us were at risk of being arrested because of our skin privilege. And that means we benefit. Right. And there were a lot of, there were several white clergy out who um, were not at risk. Correct. And then there were several clergy of color that um, were very intentional about where they positioned their bodies, uh, right. what they were willing to say, how and when they were willing to take the microphone. Um, you know, when it all comes down to it, friends, educating yourself on ridding ridding yourself of racism and then turning yourself into an anti-racist is not a project that you are going to accomplish in these next few months. It is not something that you're going to be able to walk out of quarantine and say, Oh my God, I had the best experience during quarantine. I became an, I became an anti-racist. Right. Um, This goal 
for you or this this intent for you on moving into a space of anti-racism and divesting yourself of your of of the supremacist culture that has got you by the horns it is work that is going to take the rest of your life some of you are coming at this work in your 20s and some of you are coming at this work in your 70s and we know that there are people every age in between that listen to our words and that that hear this our our recommendations for you in the work um but you you have to be mindful of of what you're doing and how you're doing it and most importantly um is anything you're doing going to damage others and that's what performative that's what it means to be um you know performative in this work of of liberation don't go out there um if 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 you if if you're just going out there to make sure that you get a selfie of yourself in the middle of a protest um right i i I, I want so much more for us as white people. And I think we have the capacity to deliver it. But our, our need for rightness and our need for centeredness always um, blind our need for collective liberation for others. Mm-hmm. And until yeah. we get out of our own way on that, I don't, um, I don't know I don't know how much, how many white bodies in the streets it, it's going to take before it, before it helps. Hmm. Yeah. And I just, um, I just want to go back to if, if we are not, and I include myself in this as a white passing Latinx, if we are not committed to doing the deep inner work, then our outer work will not be aligned with the goals for collective yes. liberation and and just like i mean just like on monday where you were calling out mike stewart saying you're complicit in the system you know that's privilege you know that comes from a place of you knowing in your inner work that the inner and the outer has to be aligned and i'm glad that you know that and i want you know i want our i want us to model that kind of orientation to the work so that other people can follow and we don't get it right all the time that's that's it's not about being right that's a myth of whiteness um but it's about a deep embodied commitment to the alignment of inner and outer work for collective liberation and just like gloria Zadua says when i change myself i change the world so white folks and white passing folks as you divest and as you shift and as you invest in black business and other and other in other ways that remove you from systems of oppression you begin to shape the outer world and we desperately need to shape the outer world for the benefit of black and brown folks who are so deeply impacted by our behaviors and by our good intentions so impacted that they're dying we got a lot of work to do we got a lot of work to do it's never ending no it's not friends you've got your marching orders that's probably shouldn't say it that way it sounds super like (laughs) 
I don't know. Friends, you know what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. You need, yep. you know what you need to do. Um, get your hands dirty, do it for the right reason. Um, and do it with the care and conscientious nature that, um, the black organizers in your midst need, um, follow their lead. They will tell you what they need. Um, if you allow yourself yep. to listen to them. So mm. till next week, let's get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, Activist and Theology, share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.